0: One of the reasons Alfred Hitchcock was justified in declaring himself the master of suspense is because he understood the key to suspense is knowledge. The audience has to know either everything that is going on, or at least more than the protagonists. Here is Hitchcock in 1963 explaining his method to the then film curator of New York's Museum of Modern Art, Peter Bogdanovich. You and I are sitting talking here, having a very innocuous conversation about nothing, boring... Suddenly, boom, the thing goes up and they're shocked. For 15 seconds, now we change it. Play the same scene. Insert the bomb, show that the bomb is placed there. Establish that it's gonna go off at one o'clock. It's now a quarter of one, 10 of one. Show a clock on the wall. Now go over the same scene. Now our conversation becomes very vital by sheer nonsense. Don't talk nonsense. Look under the table, you fool. Mm. Now they're working for ten minutes instead of being surprised for fifteen seconds. Another key to Hitchcock's success is he knew that in order to make suspense work, he had to begin by making the event relatable. One of the ways he did that was by taking mundane, everyday objects and then transforming them into things of such great importance that their function was all but subverted. Which is why his great sequences often begin so innocuously carrying a glass of milk up a stairs, waiting at a remote bus stop, sitting in a children's playground. Now consider this. We're at a party. A wide shot shows us guests chatting, drinking and dancing. Slowly, the camera begins to crane across the room. As it moves, it starts to close in on something. Closer and closer it goes until finally it settles on a tight shot of a man blinking nervously. That moment comes late in Hitchcock's 1937 picture, Young and Innocent. Haven't you seen anyone with a twitch yet? Uh, Too many people. You must find him. Well, I can't ask him more if they twitch Now no, we no we can He must be here somewhere. Hitchcock had so many themes, tropes and motifs. Guilt, confession and Catholicism. Mistaken identity, faked deaths and falling from great heights. Trains, staircases and windows. All of them wrapped up inside one unimportant MacGuffin it should come as no surprise that he chose to take the crane shot from Young and Innocent and repeat it in his 1946 masterpiece, Notorious. Only this time, he made a crucial variation. Hitchcock was always pushing the technical limits of cinema, whether experimenting with sound, as he did with just his third talkie, Murder, which features an audio flashback, or the visual effects of Yellow Screen in The Birds, not to mention the reverse zoom shot in Vertigo. Not content to simply repeat the shot from Young and Innocent, Hitchcock pushed to develop it for Notorious. Set right after World War II, when the full scale of the Holocaust was just becoming known, Ingrid Bergman plays Alicia Huberman, whose father has just been imprisoned for his role in the atrocities. US agent T. Or Devlin, played by Cary Grant, is assigned to recruit Alicia to infiltrate a group of fugitive Nazis. Alicia and Devlin quickly become romantically involved, but their mission diverts into Rio de Janeiro, where it is suspected that Gestapo personnel are plotting a new genocide. Alicia succeeds in accessing the group, but her position is compromised when she is courted by one of the Nazis, Alex Sebastian, played by Claude Rain. Then things get more complicated. Mr. Sebastian has asked me to marry him. What? Well, well. He, um, he wants me to marry him right away and I am to give him my answer at lunch. And I didn't know what the department might think about such a step. Are you willing to go this far for us, Miss Lupin? Yes, if you wish. The script for Notorious was developed over a lengthy time by Hitchcock and Ben Hecht, and while Hecht worked wonders with the dialogue, creating subtle but sometimes not so subtle subtext, Hitchcock was intent on creating a signature set piece. In Young and Innocent, the camera on a long crane moves across the ballroom at a regular height above the dancers until it arrives in on the bandstand, at the back of which sits the drummer struggling to keep the rhythm because his eyes keep nervously blinking. For Notorious, Hitchcock and cinematographer Ted Tetslav began at a great height, panning across from a staircase and then tilting down to look at the foyer below. There we see Alicia talking to Alex. And then the camera moves forward and down, and forward and down, and forward and down, as if on an elevator that has been pushed across the hall. Until we are in a tight close-up on Alicia's hand, in which she is nervously clutching a key. Today, such manoeuvre would be of little bother to a camera crew. Shooting with video assist and digitally in 4K, it wouldn't matter whether everything was perfectly positioned or not, because the image could be reframed in post-production, so Alicia's hand and the key are dead centre in the picture. But back in the 1940s, here is cinematographer John Bailey to help explain the challenge. You would set up a shot looking through the lens, but when you actually did the shot, you had to rack the camera over so that the film itself lined up with the lens, but you couldn't see through the lens. It was black at that point. So the way you determined the composition was there was a side finder, and the operator could only determine sometimes whether he had the accurate composition at the end of the shot. When the director yelled, cut, nobody would move, the camera would be racked over into the viewing position, the operator would look at the lens and decide whether the shot was a properly composed and whether it was in focus. Of course, given Hitchcock's penchant for visual innuendo, there is something else going on at the shot. Not only is the camera moving down to see Alicia holding the key, that key will then take us down further into the basement of Sebastian's mansion where the secret's plot will be unlocked. And if we are to be Freudian about it, as indeed Heck's dialogue alludes earlier in the film, something else would be going on down below. Let's not go out for dinner. Let's stay here. We have to eat? Mm -hmm. What you need here. I'll cook. I thought you didn't like to cook. No, I don't like to cook. (laughs) But I have a chicken in the icebox and you're eating it. For me, Notorious is Hitchcock's most atypical, yet most successful film in his 54-year career. Atypical because it is first and foremost a romance, and most successful because it so seamlessly blends that romance into a spy thriller that it helped advance both genres. The romance because it is so riddled with paranoia, and the spy thriller because that paranoia jeopardises the mission. What are you sore about? You knew very well what I was doing. Did I? You could have stopped me with one word, but no you wouldn't, you threw me at him. I threw you at nobody. Didn't you tell me to go ahead? The man doesn't tell a woman what to do, she tells herself. Hecht is credited as Notorious's sole writer, and although Clifford Odets was drafted in to do a polish, a polish which Hitchcock then studiously ignored, in actual fact the premise for Notorious was lifted from a silent melodrama released in 1927. Convoy opens at the end of 1917, just as America is entering World War I. It focuses on Sylvia Dodge, a young woman who, no sooner has she seen her sweetheart head off to fight, is approached by a Secret Service agent who encourages her to revive a friendship with an old admirer who is now suspected of leading a German spy ring. However, Convoy itself is not an original scenario. Instead, an adaptation of a two-part short story, The Song of the Dragon, first printed in the Saturday Evening Post. Written in 1921 by playwright and novelist John Tainter Foote, there can be little doubt that Foote wrote it without knowing of Margarita Zella, better known as Mata Harry. The Dutch woman, tried and executed by the French army in 1917, on the charge of being a German spy. And it was that detail that caught the attention of Hitchcock and Hecht, when, in 1944, they were working on the script for Spellbound. Police believe the imposter who escaped from Green Manors... To be the patient who visited the real Dr. Edwards in the Cumberland Mountains, the day that the noted psychiatrist disappeared. No trace of Dr. Edwards has been found since he left the Cumberland Resort in the company of his supposed patient. Do you remember that? No. Why do you believe in that you were with him? Because wherever we went, I came back with his identity. Spellbound starred Ingrid Bergman and Gregory Peck. And while Bergman's character, Dr. Constance Peterson, was treating Peck's traumatised John Ballantyne, Hitchcock and Hecht wanted a new plot where Bergman would play a fallen woman who assumes a false identity and becomes immersed in an espionage scheme where she has to form romantic attachments with men on both sides of the conflict. Initially, Joseph Cotton was considered for the role of the US agent. He had starred opposite Bergman in the romantic thriller Gaslight, for which Bergman had won her first Academy Award. But Bergman had casting approval and she preferred Cary Grant. However, that did not stop Bergman and Cotton reuniting in 1948 for a radio production of Notorious. And it's interesting to hear Cotton's performance to figure out just why Bergman was correct in her choice. Morning, Alicia. Feel any better? Oh, what do you care how I feel? You cop? <laughs> it's eight o'clock. Oh. Your other guest left about three hours ago. Oh, oh uh, want a refill for that ice bag? Say, so what's all this about? What's your angle? What angle? Why did you crash my party? Huh? Wanted to meet you. Oh, so you could frame me? No, got a job for you. Mm, don't tell me. There's only one job that you coppers would want me for, but I'm I'm not a stool pigeon, Mr. Devlin. <laughs> my department has authorized me to offer you a job in Brazil. Oh, go away. Some go. of the German gentry whom your father once worked for are in Rio now, busy as little bees. I'm not interested. We're working with the Brazilian government to smoke them out. My chief thinks that the daughter of a... Of a traitor. Well... He thinks you could be valuable to us and you could make up a little of your daddy's peculiarities. Why should I? Patriotism. Patriotism. (laughs) Waving the flag in one hand and picking pockets with the other? That's your patriotism and you can have it. From almost the very first moment we meet her, Alicia is presented as an alcoholic and a woman of, shall we say, an unfastened corset. It is Alicia who gives the film its title. She is a notorious woman and just how notorious can be seen when she hosts the party at the start of the movie. Haven't I seen you somewhere before? Well, it doesn't matter. I like party crashers. He's not a party crasher, I brought him. Oh, Mr. Hopkins. I wouldn't mind not. being followed by a cop. I wasn't thinking I think hate low-underhanded people like policemen. he footing after you. Of course, I'm a marked woman, you know? I'm liable to blow up the Panama Canal any minute now. She is wearing a tiger print top with a bare midriff, and just to illustrate the point that she is a wild woman, when she and Devlin go out for a midnight drive, Devlin takes a scarf and ties it around her waist. Yes, this is a woman who will have to be reined in. But before we say that this is just another example of Hitchcock's misogyny, Alicia's alcoholism is really metaphorical of a far more dangerous disease. Fascism. I told you before Christmas I wouldn't do it. You don't use your judgement. You can have anything you want. The work is easy. I'm not listening, Father. This is not your country, is it? My mother was born here. We have America citizenship. Where's your judgment? And your feelings you are German. you got to listen to me. You don't know what we stand for. I know what you stand for. You and your murderous wife. Watch carefully and you will see Alicia serve, or is served, a series of drinks that get her drunk, sober her up, or poison her. But while she tries to dry out from alcoholism, what Hex's script really has her going through is a political and ideological detox program. Just look at the MacGuffin used for the film uranium. And where is this uranium hidden? In a wine bottle. Another drink and another poison. In other words, Heck's plot would not only kill Alicia, but possibly half the world. No one must know what she is. There must be no suspicion of her, of you, or me. She must be allowed to move about freely, but she will be on a leash. She will learn nothing further to inform. She must go but it must happen slowly. If she could become ill. Ben Hecht was a bit of a conundrum. Born to Belarusian Jewish immigrants in New York in 1893, Hecht started out as a reporter for the Chicago Daily News, covering the First World War from Berlin. He witnessed the interim government gunning down over 200 socialist revolutionaries. That left a mark on him, but it was only when he returned to the Windy City in 1921 that he gained a reputation. Now, a crime reporter, he was most effective when investigating domestic tawdry crimes of passion. But with the rise of the Chicago Mafia, he also chronicled the crimes of Johnny Torrio and Al Capone. By the middle of the decade, however, Hecht had headed back to New York where he turned his hand to theater, writing the hit plays, the front page and 20th century. And from there, he went to Los Angeles, where he became one of the greatest writers Hollywood has ever seen. Whether on his own or in collaboration, he wrote amongst dozens of others, Scarface, Gunga Din, Wuthering Heights, Kiss of Death and A Farewell to Arms. But those were only a fraction of the films to which he allowed his name be attached. He did uncredited work on A Star is Born, Angels with Dirty Faces, Stagecoach, Gone with the Wind, Jude in the Sun, It's a Wonderful Life, Gilda, The Thing from Another World, The Man with the Golden Arm, Mutiny on the Bounty, Cleopatra, as well as five other Hitchcock films, Foreign Correspondent, Lifeboat, Rope, The Paradine Case, and Strangers on a Train. All that, plus Hecht, was the very first recipient of the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay, Underworld, in 1927. And although he was nominated another five times, Notorious included, Hecht held his film work in such low regard that he was also the first person to use an Oscar as a doorstop. Look, I'll make it easy for you. The time has come when you must tell me that you have a wife and two adorable children, and this madness between us can't go on any longer. I bet you've heard that line often enough. Right below the belt every time. Well, that isn't fair, Dad. Skip it. We have other things to talk about. We've got a job. Never fully regarding himself as Jewish, it was only when Hecht read of the nationwide program in Germany in November 1938 that his Jewish identity awoke. Recalling both Chicago's gangland murders in the 20s and Germany's post-war interim government executing revolutionaries in the street, Hecht lucidly identified the peril Europe's Jewish people were facing, thuggery and mass murder sanctioned by the state. In reaction, he petitioned both Hollywood studios and Washington lawmakers to intervene, but finding very little enthusiasm in either place, Hecht opted instead to publish a collection of short stories. A Book of Miracles features The Little Candle, where he depicted, with tragic prescience, the fate that he feared awaited the Jewish people of Europe. Early this year saw the publication of not just one, but two, Hecht biographies, one by Julian Gorbach, the other by Adina Hoffman, and here is Hoffman reading from The Little Candle. We Jews opened our morning newspapers unprepared for what we were to read. We stared with nausea and disbelief at the print, for we found that the cloud we had watched so long and in a way so aloofly had grown suddenly black and dreadful and immense. It filled all the pages of the journals. The world had made it seem but a single face overnight, and this face thrust itself into our breakfast hour, ugly and hellish, like a monster evoked out of the smoking pages of our history. It confronted us exultant and with the ancient howl of massacre on its lips. So yes, Notorious is a romantic thriller, but it is also an allegory, warning that while the Nazis were defeated in World War II, genocidal fervour could return. And in that respect, we should finish with Bertolt Brecht, who in 1941 wrote The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui. It tells of a Chicago gangster who ruthlessly murders his opponents, and ends with the chorus telling us, although the world stood up and stopped the bastard, the bitch that bore him is in heat again.